Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm had dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Dan Z, my co-host in the show, are back because all sorts of really intriguing Star Wars news has broken, never mind over the last 10 days, over the last 10 minutes. But we'll get to that in a minute. Obviously, the big news, Dan, that broke over the past two weeks, I think, in fact, just after we recorded our last show, was that interview that Bob Iger, the CEO of the Walt Disney Company, did with Matthew Baloney from The Hollywood Reporter. That got published back in the 20th. You saw that, right? I did, and as you said a few moments ago, that happened literally the day after we recorded our last show. But hey, that must mean we are good luck for Lucasfilm fans. Perhaps, or maybe, depending on how you look at it. That means we have to work on our timing, but oh, tonight we've got the timing, because yes. this interview touched on a lot of things. And For example, Disney Play, that subscription streaming service that the Walt Disney Company is, is launching in 2019. But speaking of which, minutes before Dan and I sat down to record, big news came out about a project that's coming out for uh, for the streaming service. And care to share, Dan? Yes. So John Favreau, on his official Facebook and Instagram pages, revealed the title of the live-action Star Wars series, and it's going to be called The Mandalorian. I mean, that, ooh, okay, I could tell you all kinds of things about Mandalorians and how significant that is to Star Wars fans. For one thing, that's, of course, the armor worn by Boba Fett and later by Jango Fett, even though that's in reverse order of the timeline of the story. But it, people have always been enamored with that. Naturally, Star Wars Rebels character Sabine Wren is Mandalorian, and we saw a lot of action on the planet of Mandalore. So that culture, that armor, has been very iconic and, and very mythical for Star Wars fans. And now it looks like they're going to really dive into this. And there's a synopsis of the show, isn't there? Yeah, come on, you have to share. All right, all right. I'll, I'll give my best uh, ominous uh, Mandalorian voice. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know if there is such a thing. After the stories of Jango and Boba Fett, another warrior emerges in the Star Wars universe. The Mandalorian is set after the fall of the Empire and before the emergence of the First Order. We follow the travails of a lone gunfighter in the outer reaches of the galaxy, far from the authority of the New Republic. And then we've got our ellipsis. Wow. What are your initial thoughts on this? I love that we're in that space. If you look at what Disney's done with Batu, you know, that sort of thing. Everybody loves to be in this world, but wants to be out in the outer reaches of the galaxy. They want to be just beyond the reach of authority and that sort of thing. So I have to wonder, given that this is where they're sketching out the canvas, if we're going to actually see maybe somebody make a trip to Black Spire Outpost. Oh, I, I bet that would certainly be a possibility. It would make sense to tie it all in, especially as we get closer to the opening of those of those parks on, on mm. the various coasts in the United States. The thing that's interesting to me, though, is that they've set themselves up so that they won't be involved in the, in basically the, the Skywalker portion of the program, if you will. Because you can True. be in the wild space, which there are some books about that, mm-hmm. even though this is not specifically referencing that line of books, the young adult books. But there is some cool stuff here. The Mandalorian kind of has a Clint Eastwood 
kind of Sergio Leone. Leone oh, no, ab- absolutely. I love that it's that vibe. We'll just have to keep close watch as the 2018 feeds into 2019. As of right now, Disney hasn't announced a firm launch date yet for Disney Play, but it's worth noting that ESPN Plus, their streaming subscription service, launched in April and I want to say just in the past week or so, the Wall Street Journal reported that they'd, they'd reached a significant milestone. They had more than a million subscribers for this, this service. But the ESPN Plus is four ninety nine a month. I don't know yet what the price point will be for Disney. But but either way, at the Mandalorian, they got my $4.99. Oh my gosh, they had me at the... The, <laughs> the challenge for me, though, and, and this mm. is too early to know, is... Yeah. Is this going to be true streaming where all however many episodes there are air at one time? Because if that's so, I'm going to have to get in a bunker without Wi-Fi and or, or only a, a special channel that only gives me the streaming service because I don't want any of this to be spoiled. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's going to be that's going to be a good challenge. I agree. Now, getting back now to uh, Mr. Iger's interview with the Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. He touched on firing Roseanne. He touched on the James Gunn Guardians of the Galaxy three issue. But to be honest, for Star Wars fans, the real part of the interview that caught their eye was when Baloney turned to Iger and said, many people believe Disney should pump the brakes and not put out a Star Wars movie each year. And Iger's response was fascinating. He said, I made the timing decision. And as I look back, I think the mistake that I made, I take the blame, by the way, was a little too much too fast. So you can expect some slowdown, but... That doesn't mean that we're not going to make films. J.J. is busy working on episode 9. We have creative entities, including the Games of Thrones creators David Benoff and D.B. Weiss, who are developing sagas of their own, which we haven't been specific about yet. And we're just now at the point where we're making decisions of what comes after J.J. But I think we're going to be more careful about volume and timing. And, and the buck stops here with that. This is so counterintuitive to how people in Hollywood behave. When you're the guy in the corner office, uh, fecal matter rolls downhill. I think that's the the way it's described. (laughs) That's a very G way to say it. At any other studio, this would have been a situation where the person who was in charge of Lucasfilm, particularly after Solo had all of the issues that it had... Iger actually buries the needle in the other way because a week after this interview runs in The Hollywood Reporter, here's The Hollywood Reporter announcing that Kathleen Kennedy, the president of Lucasfilm, has just extended her deal with Disney, that she's now going to be in charge of Lucasfilm at least through 2021, which means, just as Iger was referencing in his interview, the notion of she's going to be there at least long enough to work on the film after nine as to, you know, where the Star Wars franchise goes from there. There's so much to me to celebrate about this, and I, I expected to see more uh, of vitriol online. I, I didn't really, which is good, although I, I mute pretty much anyone who's super negative online anyway, so it probably would mm-hmm. be hard for me to see that. But here's the thing, and I've said this on Coffee with Kenobi as well. This is a really, really positive thing because less is more when it comes to Star Wars. And look at the history of this franchise from the late 70s on. Originally, as we've said before on looking at Lucasfilm, you had to wait three years between films. Now that there was one every year, as exciting as it was to see Rogue One and The Last Jedi, and believe me, it was, there was nothing like that sensation of seeing The Force Awakens because of that long gap 
from 2005 mm-hmm. to 2015. That's pretty significant, especially in terms of how we consume entertainment because of streaming and cell phones and just everything that goes on into the entertainment universe. This is this zeitgeist. It's everywhere. It's mm-hmm. omnipresent. So now that they're going to have the creative decision to give us an opportunity to wait. And let's be honest, The Last Jedi was heavy, probably the heaviest Star Wars movie ever filmed. And there was a lot to process, a lot to digest, and that's still going on for some fans, and I think that's fantastic. So Solo comes along, and it's very much the opposite of that. It's very light, uh, wonderful, and I think, the, as you and I predicted, the reviews of people who are seeing this for the first time you know, in the comfort of their own homes is gigantic, and that's because they gave themselves a little bit of time to wait till they got to the new films. This is only going to help the franchise in the long run, and I think Iger who's clearly a very, very smart man, understands that Star Wars should be an event, and you can't really have an event if you have it out all the time. Christmas isn't Christmas if you get it twice a year. It's just not. So you have you. this weight is going to be a really, really strong thing. Get us hungry for it. I have to agree. I think Disney has taken a careful approach to Star Wars. If Mary Poppins returns... This film that Disney had the treat with kid gloves and wanted to put in the exact right space and wanted to launch it before the Christmas holidays and also put it position it for award season. That would have been where Solo landed. And I honestly think if Solo, if there had been enough breathing space between The Last Jedi and Solo, it would have been a very different story. I mean, yes, there were yeah. all of you know the negative stories about. Miller and Lord being taken off of the project and Ron Howard coming in, but that doesn't matter with the you know when you get to the end product and the end product I I still think is is ridiculously entertaining. There's a part of me that just feels bad that it looks like right now, or at least I think we discussed this in the last show that Jonathan Kazdan was talking about. Yeah, I don't think we're seeing the solo sequel anytime soon, and I kind of wanted to see Mob Boss Darth Maul and what would happen next. You know, especially oh, yeah. with, you know, with young Han going off and meeting Jabba. But I think we will. I, I think money will talk, as you know. And I think that the the more people download and buy this Blu-ray, mm-hmm. I think we'll see. I think we'll. I do think we'll see it. And you know, I don't know when, but obviously, isn't this ironic? We have to take another Harrison Ford screen character and hope that the actor doesn't age too much before they age out of the role. I have to admit, I'm taking some solace in um, the other announcement that happened while we were away. That on the Marvel side of the street, we're about to see a limited series done with Loki and the Scarlet Witch, but that it's the actor who played them in the movies. You know, Tom Hiddleston coming back as Loki and Elizabeth Olsen as Scarlet Witch, but the, the 68 episode limited series, and it's who knows if the Mandalorian is ridiculously popular and maybe that's the way Solo continues as a limited series, you know, for the subscription service. I think so. I think that would be fine. I mean, you know, again, it depends on how much money they can get out of this. And, and, and the Mandalorian is a good test for that. Boy, it's nice to have a title, by the way. Yeah, I, I agree. I but agree. that be because, you know, if it's, I know they're going to, pour the money into it to make the effect strong because you pretty much have to with a Star Wars creation like that. So there's a ton of potential. By the way, I didn't really address the Kathleen Kennedy thing. I think this is such a great thing. Lucas mm-hmm. handpicked her. She's a visionary. She's She knows more and she's made more incredible films than 
most people could even possibly dream of. And Lucasfilm is in great hands with her. She's she's a marvel, and she she's a great person, and she's a creative person, and she knows how to make a strong film. And if it wasn't for her having the courage and the guts to nip in the bud when she saw that the creative process wasn't going the way that would benefit Lucasfilm in the long run, who knows where we'd be. Maybe we really would have a failure with Solo, and we don't, and that's all because of her. As somebody who studied the life of Walt Disney, this trust me, if you, you talk to a lot of the old-timers, Walt did this sort of stuff a lot. You know, there were a lot of things that, that got thrown out after weeks and weeks and weeks of work. In fact, I remember talking with Ward Kimball. He worked on no less than two full scenes for Snow White that both got tossed, you know, after months and months of working on them. And he almost quit the company over the fact that he'd put all this time and effort into a scene where the dwarves were building a bed for Snow White. And then there was a scene where they were drinking soup. And Walt, sensing the ward was about to head out the door, was like, hey, we're about to do Pinocchio. And we, we've got this character, Jiminy Cricket. Would you like to take a crack at it? And so the guys in charge sometimes have to make the tough calls about things that are well in the process of, of being made that, that have to be cut or shut down or that sort of thing. But speaking of things that are, are, are being made and created, obviously it's been a while since we've talked about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and construction is continuing apace. Just in the past week or so, some wonderful photographs of the site in or- Orlando at Disney Hollywood Studios. Uh, so somebody evidently hired a plane and flew over the park and got some, some amazing construction shots. But even more interesting is you can see them, they're well into the work, getting ready to begin pouring concrete and that sort of thing for the hotel. But part of this, if we switch to the Anaheim version of Galaxy's Edge, that's supposed to open in May of 2019. And there's 23,000 people who work for the Disneyland Resort out there, and some of them don't necessarily know a whole lot about Star Wars. And the folks who work at the Disneyland Resort have decided they're going to spend the year out ahead of the opening of Black Spire Outpost in Anaheim educating the staff of Disneyland. And in the cast newsletter, starting in May, is the woman Jamie Douglas. She's an internal community manager at the Disneyland Resort, she started this column called Star Wars 101, which I, I, I spent the better part of today doing a transcript of so I, I could share this with Dan because there's so many goodies in this thing. Did, did you get a chance to read it, Dan? I did read it tonight. I, I enjoyed it. It's very much, I'm interested to see how people, because it, it says that it's for people who are, are newbies to the Star Wars universe and then as well as to people who are, who are veterans. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to what what did it do for you? What what did it bring up for you? Because there's quite a bit of it uh, that I could point to where a lot of this came from. But I want to see what you think first. For me, it gave a very strong overview of what exactly we can expect when we come through the gate at Black Spire Outpost. That there's some legitimate 101 stuff here. I mean, for example, there was the article about how the Force works, and you know that they gave us. You know, a lot of background on Luke and that sort of thing. So obviously, again, that's aimed at the newbie. But for me, what was fascinating were the stories, for example, about how the First Order rose up out of the remains of the Empire, which, which again, is for somebody who's coming in just from 
The Force Awakens of the the Last Jedi. It's like, yeah, what what happened there? Because anybody who saw the the Return of the Jedi knows that you know the Empire fell, and how is it that after thirty years of peace, we ended up here? To get back to the information they were sharing with the Disneyland cast members, the emphasis on the newer planets, Jakku, or you know the whole notion of we're going to ground this a lot in the new trilogy, whether it was explaining the new Star Destroyers or the new TIE Fighters or that sort of thing. So people will know that things have changed a little bit. The thing that really, really caught my eye, Dan, was the out of the description of Batu talking about how this was a once busy crossroads. Now it's a remote outpost at the, on the galaxy's edge. But the line that really caught my eye was, until recently, a safe haven for those looking to avoid the attention of the First Order. That's the key line right there, Dan. Because that's tied into the new attraction, right? It seems to be. The idea is that the day you go through the portal on the Critter Countryside and you come through the forest and you find that squadron of X-Wings who are recruiting you for the, this you know, mission to go up to the Star Destroyer, or if you come through the portal on the Fantasyland side and you enter the marketplace and suddenly there's a, you know, a shuttle, you know, a, you know, a first order shuttle standing there and stormtroopers and they, you're supposedly arriving at Black Spire Outpost on the day that the first order arrives. All of the the shop holders and all the people in the, the cantinas and then that sort of thing, the, these day players, so to speak. They're really shook up because this is big. You know, they haven't ever been here before. I think we've talked previously about there's a stunt show planned for the marketplace where at that moment, who comes out of the the shuttle but Kylo Ren himself? He's there looking for the resistance. He's heard that there's a resistance present here at Blackspire Outpost and he's going to root them out. Talk about being ensconced in the universe and feeling a part of it because they're they're setting up the picture like a sort of a, a linear storytelling line, and the things about the First Order rising up from the rem- from the remains of the Empire and the Thirty Years of Peace. Basically, if you want those full stories fleshed out for you, Chuck Wendig wrote what's known as the Aftermath trilogy, which takes place pretty much right after Return of the Jedi and the destruction of the new the newer Death Star and the fall of Palpatine. Mm-hmm. It takes you through all of that in the kind of the seeds of how the the first order becomes and how basically Palpatine has a contingency plan for if in the unlikely event in his mind that he were to fail, what they would do. And it shows uh, General Hux, who you know was the redhead from the Force Awakens and Last Jedi, his father mm-hmm. helps to get this started, and then uh, Hux from the newer films uh, is a young boy in it. And then the once we start to find out how the First Order starts to get financed, that is in a book called Bloodline. And it is probably, to me, the best Star Wars novel that has been written over the past, well, since Disney took over and, and everything became canonical. It's yeah, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. In fact, I'm trying to peek over my shoulder here to look at it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, it's Claudia Gray. Of course it's Claudia Gray. But if you're interested in those things and seeing how the First Order starts, because it's going to give you a lot of clues about what you can expect from Galaxy's Edge, it's all right there in those books. Very cool. No, definitely have to chase those down. Now, speaking of books, though, what's kind of interesting about Disney's approach 
to what they're doing at Galaxy's Edge. You know, the whole notion of getting these stories out in advance for cast members who are working in Anaheim. Universal yeah. actually did something very similar back in 2010 when they opened the Wizarding World of Harry Potter of Islands of Adventure. I remember talking with team members who were part of the opening of, of Hogsmeade Village. They said in order, to, in order to get to be part of this project, they had to take a quiz. They literally had to have either read the J.K. Rowling books or had seen the Potter movies to be able to answer some very specific questions about the world and the characters. The idea was when you worked in that story, you were in Hogsmeade. And so, you know, if somebody came in and, you know, said, I'm being sorted into Hufflepuff and I need the right sweater and, you know, scarf and that sort of thing. And they're, you know, oh, you know, and, and would know exactly who Helga Hufflepuff was. This isn't going to open till at least May of 2019. Here they are, you know, sort of plowing the road for cast members, giving them the background, giving them the, you know, and this will continue for, for months yet, Dan, and, and I will share these stories as I get my hands on them. Yeah, they're fu- they're really fun, and I, I think in addition to writing a column, I, I think that they need to bring somebody in because Star Wars is a visual medium. You need, you need somebody to come and kind of instruct and teach Oh, gosh. Well, I think I'll just volunteer myself to I was about to say, you know, (laughs) Disney, if you're looking for somebody, I know a guy. Hashtag shameless promo. That's right. (laughs) Speaking of Dan, once we get back from our break here, Dan has some stories to share about the, the Star Wars Resistance Media Days. We'll be back shortly here, so hang in there, folks. Again, you're a working teacher, so you weren't able to actually get out to L.A. for the, the Star Wars Media Resistance Day, is that correct? But but you sent a trusted associate? I did. They they were great. Lucasfilm was gracious enough to invite me to the media event, and they knew I wasn't going to be able to make it, which was still cool that they asked me all the same. And then oh, they sure. said they could they'd be happy to take someone in my steed, and so I sent my my brother-in-law, Bill Thill, who lives down there anyway, and he's a, mm-hmm. he's certainly a man about town, and he, he works in Hollywood, and he's, he's smart as a whip. So he went, and he interviewed members of the cast, and I'll have full audio, actually, of that on Coffee with Kenobi later the first week in October, if people want to listen to those interviews. But he had a ball. He was very impressed with the enthusiasm of the cast, the sincere passion they had for the franchise, and, and their fans, too. So, and I think that comes through in these conversations. They're very excited, and he's seen the first couple episodes, and he says they're just great, great Star Wars fun. And and I can certainly vouch that they they are tremendous fun. I can't wait to see what people say about them. Now, did do you have any particular impressions of the show? The share, I mean, obviously, it's kind of a different visual style this time. I mean, face it, I think we we talked previously about Star Wars Rebels, where the idea was to sort of take the early work, the development work that Ralph McQuarrie had done and translate that to CG. And this time around, it's more kind of an anime style, isn't it? It is. It's got that the very heavy Robotech, kind of a Voltron vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's an element of the anime more so than they, they've ever done before. But it's not, it's not a distraction and it's not a gimmick. It just sort of feels natural because of this sort of Hot Wheels futuristic design of these vehicles. And we don't always see that because Star Wars has always been kind of a lived-in universe 
atmosphere. And, and I don't get that out of these different ships that they have that are protecting this water planet. And it really causes uh, some interesting sort of effects on us as an audience because, again, it's very Star Wars-y, but it's also very futuristic. And, and, and I, I really liked it. I, I was a little resistant to Resistance, ironically, mm. but, but I was quite happy. What I find intriguing is the notion that this this story really starts, what, six months before Force Awakens? I mean, the Star Wars 101 stuff we were talking about in the earlier segment, they talked about how, in one of the articles, about how Leia has been watching the First Order from a distance and you know has grown concerned about them. But a lot of the hooks in the New Republic are like, we've had 30 years of peace and you can't let go of the past. Leia turns to Poe and asks him to to seek people to you know to, to help form the resistance. And by placing this young racer on the fueling station on this giant water planet with the notion that you're out here and you will see things and you need to report back to us. I mean, it, I, for me, it's a very interesting place to start a story. It is because, again, it's got, it adds another planet to the universe and it also gives people a jumping on point because by by now star wars is ex- is extremely intimidating if you're not 100% familiar with it and you can't tell the difference between r2d2 and c3po so this this very much feels like a jumping on point and i don't even know if it's it seems awfully controversial so i don't even know if we want to discuss it but the actress who plays the the general lay on resistance um, oh, yes. causes a lot of problems for herself and yes. i think her career yeah, she thought she was being clever and, and mimicking Ms. Ford, and it was kind of a bad choice. Yes, terrible timing and, and very tactless and, and <laughs> not, not a good decision. Uh, did you remember Gilbert Godfrey? Oh, yeah. He made jokes right after the tsunami hit Japan. This was a guy who, who at that time, you know, had a very lucrative career as being the voice of the Affleck Duck. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And they took it away from him. And I remember talking with a friend who had just called and was speaking with Gilbert's wife. And it was like, can you come over here and cheer him up? Because, you know, he, he's inconsolable. He, he did what he's always done. You know, he's Gilbert Godfrey. He made inappropriate jokes. But... He made, you know, inappropriate jokes about tragedy, you know, that happened in Japan and lost a $150,000 a year gig, which when you're you're somebody who's thinking about how you're putting your kids through college, no joke is worth that. No. Anyway, <laughs> pivoting to another topic. So last time uh, you and I had both received our review copies of Solo a Star Wars Stories, and we were promising folks that we'd we'd actually take a look at this thing, especially the, the cutscenes and thereabouts. And so what was your take? I love them. I thought I thought that one of the things that comes through and in Disney's done a great job with this mm-hmm. is they show us and they, they bring us into the culture of the cast and the environment. Obviously it's a very, very small snapshot but it just shows that the, these are people in these films become like family. My favorite thing is the, is the the round table that they have of Ron Howard talking with the cast of Solo, and he just asks them questions about what you know what was it like when you got these roles? How did you tell your families? How did you find the news out? What was auditions like? 
you know, tell me about how you decided on a backstory for your character that helped kind of get you in that mindset. And everyone's laughing and joking, and it it's just a, an, an absolute delight to be a part of. You feel like you're a fly, you know, on the window for, for these actors who are talking about their love of these characters. They clearly respect and enjoy each other's company, which I always appreciate as a fan. And just as a human being, I, I just like seeing people happy, and they're genuinely happy. And another thing that's fun selfishly for me is that this is the exact clothing that they wore when I was at the press junket. So everything that they wore, I, I know I got to talk to some of them while they were wearing it. So, you know, that's kind of neat for me. Well, I have to admit, as a longtime fan of Ron Howard, that was yes. honestly one of my favorite parts of the Blu-ray. Also, you know, to be honest, I also enjoyed the, the little pop of the hood on the Millennium Falcon ride that this includes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. Nice to finally get some details after all these years of, of looking through keyholes and, you know, having people. That's a whole other show. We could talk about that for the, the second show of the month. This is true. This is true. Now, speaking of the Millennium Falcon, though, I got a very cool thing in the mail just yesterday from the very nice folks at Studio Fun International. Are, are you familiar with this? Well, it's it's a book, but it's not a book. The Millennium Falcon book and mega model? I, I've heard of it, I but I, this is one of the few books I haven't gotten my hands on in a while, and the people who have seen it have told me it's really fun. Some of you may have seen this when it came out last year. Uh, the Edgemont UK LTD originally published this, and Katrina Pallant wrote it, but it's it's sort of an overview of the Millennium Falcon taking us through what happened in Solo, and but it, it goes through all of the owners, Lando, Han, pilots like Chewie and and, and Ray. Kept the thing that's that's fascinating about it is it includes a model that out of various paper pieces that you can put together. And the problem is I'm. I'm not a very talented person when it comes to putting things together, so I'm waving my daughter Alice over, and she's going to build the Falcon for me. Best sentence yeah. ever. <laughs> I will try to do, when we get some images of that to finally build, we'll tweet those out or something like that. But getting back to Ron Howard now, I, I think one of the things that comes across out of that interview is how down-to-earth he is. And I wanted to share a, a behind-the-scenes story about a Ron, you know, this is from years and years ago. I have a good friend, Mike Sale, who's now, he's actually one of the folks who teaches film editing. But years and years and years ago, when he was just starting out in a trailer with Ron Howard and Rod's business partner at the time, and they were cutting together a television sitcom that was starting, starring John Panette. And it just, it wasn't going well. Like, you know, they, this was the early days of the Avid system and the, the unions had locked everything up, especially when it came to film editing. But the studios wanted to try some new technology. So they, they were bringing in this computer-driven Avid system. And the old guys who literally cut film, I mean, used razor blades and tape and, you know, would cut a film together. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. Give that to the kid. And so that's how Mike ended up being the, the one who wound up driving the Avid, which then became the way that everybody wanted to cut film. And, and Ron Howard was among the, pe the first people to like, ooh, this is great. I mean, his company was producing this television pilot, but he wanted to see the Avid and work, you know, how it works. So he was down in the trailer and they were trying to cut it together and make this sitcom work. And they were just, 
they were on their third or fourth try in a particular scene and it just wasn't coming together and there's a reason the run wears baseball caps and what glazer basically said is that the person who can figure out how to cut this scene together gets to shave ron's remaining hairs off of his head and <laughs> to his credit ron was like ha 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 very funny now now we're gonna fix the show he went with it but at the same time again he was there because he was curious about this system he wanted to to be on the edge a lot of that he learned from the time he spent with George working on Willow, which we got to get some more Willow stories out there. Yes. The last little cherry on the Sunday here for the show. Did you see as part of the press that was out there last week that this I don't understand because I thought Howard the Duck already had come back as part of the Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy films. But they were mentioning that Ron Wong was tweeting out that, yeah, we are having some discussions about returning to the world of Willow. That, do you think, what do you think the odds are, the legit odds, instead of him just giving like pie in the sky stuff? Because I think, I I feel like that maybe that would be something they would explore for, uh, for the streaming service. Just today, the news broke about Disney is remaking Lilo and Stitch as a live action CG movie with, with Stitch being done as a CG character. But these days at Disney, you know, the, the first question was, okay, so is that coming out in theaters or is that the streaming service? And the pushback was, we'll let you know. I think you're right. I think, should Willow be revived? And that's the other thing. They were sort of... They had to revive Val Kilmer's career, too. Well, Mad Mardigan, I guess what's going to be interesting is if they opt to go that route, that supposedly this would be about Laura Dannon as a young woman. Which would be awesome. Dan and I will do some digging. We'll see if we can come up with some more info about that. Now, speaking of which, before we take another look at Lucasfilm, if folks are looking for you, Dan, where can they find you? They can find me each and every week on Coffee with Kenobi, which is a podcast that looks at the world of Star Wars through a critical, intellectual lens. But we also hope to make you laugh in the process. And you can find me on Twitter at MrZer, M-R-Z-E-H-R. And you can find me on StarWars.com, where I am an official blogger, as well as writing for IGN. Very good stuff, folks. You definitely have to seek that out. Meanwhile, on my side of the fence, I do the Disney dish with Len Testa. I do Marvel Us Disney with the amazing Aaron Adams. I do fine-tuning with Mr. Drew Taylor and the Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And and we got other stuff coming, but I can't talk about that now. But in the meantime, I want to thank you folks for, for tuning in for yet another looking at Lucasfilm here and... On behalf of Mr. Z, I want to wish you a good night. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.